Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. When Dominique and I get together, it's always a non-stop conversation. We both love horses and we love talking about training, so that's what we're going to do this afternoon. So, Dominique, before we jump in, part of the fun of having these podcasts is we get to share with one another fun of the day, the training excitement that we've had. And as you know, I've got these goats in the barn and I just had, I had such a great training session this morning that I have to start the podcast by sharing. Okay. A couple podcasts back, I talked about how I was working the goats, the, the three babies through, the, not really babies anymore, they were born in March, but the three youngsters, the three girls, over an agility course of sorts. So I have these long planks that are set up, and, and they're in three rows, and I could run the three girls in, along three lines, and they would run along the course and stop when I asked them to, and then keep going and stop. And, and it was really fun because they were running along in parallel lines, which was making things much less chaotic. And then overnight, everything changed that Verity decided that patience was just not to be allowed in the game. And she was chasing after her. And, and of course, they have horns. So when one starts to go after another, it's a bit, it's a bit dramatic. So the relationships with the three of them really changed quite a bit. And she was, Verity was ostracizing patients. And I thought, okay, so what do I do about this? And what I did about it was I started working them individually. I would take one out at a time and I would just go through the repertoire of the things that I really wanted to work on. And one of the most important things was having the goats on a station and getting them so that they would stay as I stepped back from them. And we talked about this in one of the recent podcasts, how important it is to teach calm stationary behaviors as a as a great base we'd stay on the station and then we'd go up onto these long ramps and and i'd stop and we'd do various husbandry types of handling along the ramp so that i used the elevated platforms to get them used to having their legs handled and their coats handled and the, the do it differently that we talked about with with ken so i was working them individually and then i started working them in pairs but in different sets. So I would work Patience and Felicity. They're the two sisters. And then I would work Felicity and Verity, and Verity being this very dominant and much larger goat than the other two. And so I was working on the repertoire and working on the pairs. And this morning, I had Verity and Felicity out. And then I just decided I would bring Patience out as well. And the three goats worked magnificently together. So I could now work the three and Verity would stay on her platform and stay along her course. And when I asked her to wait, she would wait on her platform and I could turn and work with Felicity and Patience. And then I could run them down through the agility course and, and come back and Verity would be on her side leaving them alone. 
And so it was a little training triumph for the day, but it also really emphasized to me how important the constructional training is. And we've talked about this with the horses, how when you have a problem in the training, you don't solve the problem directly. If I I had a problem with these three goats working together, trying to solve it by having the three goats out all at once was just going to create more of the problem. It was just going to let Verity practice chasing patients off. And then what you need to do instead is to go back through your training and work on the underlying repertoire, to work on the underlying pieces, the skills that need to be strengthened. And that's true whether you're talking about a goat or a horse, which is why I really enjoy working with the goats because they are such great confirmers of what we're doing with the horses. And to see it work so beautifully with these three just made me, it just made me smile because it was such a confirmation of the things that I teach the horses and that I share with people. So I had to start, I had to start with that. Very reinforcing for a trainer to have these little triumphs. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) And you know, it doesn't matter how many times you've seen something like this work. To me, whenever you see a training piece come into place, it just, it's always, it's always a wow. Wow, that worked. Yeah. And, and you know, it works, but it's still a wow. So that was fun. Well, also, it's, you know, we do spend a lot of time studying and learning and trying to understand. So when we can see it working, it feels like all this time we invested is worth our while. Yes, yes. And to see such eager learners blossoming, it's really fun. The young animals are such fast learners, in part because they're clean slates Mm. and they're eager for it. So it was it was just they, they start my day off with always with a smile. So I know what we wanted to talk about in today's podcast was equipment. We were thinking about, oh, wouldn't it be an interesting podcast to talk about all the different kinds of equipment that people use and that we use and what we like, what we don't like. And of course, that can be such a problematic, a real minefield, because a piece of equipment that I might think is really horrible is the very equipment that somebody listening uses on their horse. And they're going, oh dear, does that make me wrong? Does that make me a bad person that I use this particular type of head stall or this particular type of lead rope or you know whatever it is or, or on my horse and and of course that's not what we want to be saying at all they're one of the things that I learned early on with the horses is don't take something away unless you have something else to put in its place mm-hmm. which means that when people bring horses to clinics and they might be in a say a, a type of halter that I would not choose for my own horses but I'm not in a hurry to take it off because that that halter may be serving a benign intent it may be what is giving that handler enough control of their horse that they can manage it in a strange environment and until I have put a repertoire of training in place 
that takes the place of that piece of equipment that is giving them control, then I may be putting that horse in a very dangerous position because if the horse suddenly says, oh, there's no reason for me to stay here. You don't have that restraint device on me anymore. I'm out of here. And now he's blasting out of the handler's hand and running through a fence. Well, that's that's no good. So you can't take something away without putting something else in its place. And while we were talking about this, what it really brought to mind is that the discussion of equipment is centered around Dr. Susan Friedman's hierarchy of humane interventions. And we're going to be having a webinar, what is it, September 29th with Dr. Friedman. Yep. And, and I thought, what a great opportunity, what a great preview and preparation for that webinar to spend a few minutes talking about the whole concept of humane interventions and some of the choices that we make in our training and what the hierarchy of humane interventions without you know going into great detail because we may might be better off letting Susan do that in the webinar but that it would be an interesting centerpiece for a conversation so do you do you want to talk about it a little bit and explain it or shall I or what how do we, how do we want to do it um, well, you can you can maybe s explain summarize the hierarchy itself. Okay, it seems that I I just since I've done all the talking so far, I just thought I might toss the the tennis ball to you. I can just say this because and if people want to have the details, she does have a great article about it on her website called Behavior Works, uh, where she presents it a little bit like. A roadmap where you have various bumps that should slow you down. But the, the general idea is that um, when we select a pres uh, an intervention to modify behavior, teach behavior, that effectiveness should not be the only criteria, that there should be an ethical yes. uh, standard that we respect. And this standard is based on intrusiveness. Um, she, her suggestion is that we should use the least intrusive way to... And most positive. Yes, the most positive, least intrusive. And she defines intrusiveness as the degree to which the learner maintains control uh, while the intervention is in effect. So the first, the, at the basis of the hierarchy is antecedents? Actually not. The, the, the first thing you look oh, at is health. is health, health, is wellness. For example, you have a horse that, let's take a, the common ones, doesn't stand well for the farrier. That's, that's an interesting one always. Or doesn't go on to a trailer well. Or fusses when, you, when you're trying to tack it up. And you want to solve that as a training problem, a training issue. And you, you would begin first and foremost by looking at any health issues that might be the, the underlying cause for this behavior. If you have a horse who is pulling his foot away from the farrier, is he doing that because he's got arthritis in his hocks and it really hurts to hold his, his foot up in the 
position that the farrier wants him to hold it to hold it in. Well, you could, you could get so tough with this horse. You could, you could say to this horse, I'm going to make you believe that you are going to die if you don't hold that foot up. And you would find that a great many horses, in spite of the pain, would hold their foot up. But you would definitely not be following Susan's hierarchy of most positive, least intrusive interventions. So the, the first piece is, is there an underlying health issue? And the, the key to horses is you have to really be a good detective because a lot of the times there is something going on, but horses are really good at hiding it. Yeah. yeah. There's so many times when I've had somebody say, well, I had the vet out to check him and everything was okay. And, mm. and I think, oh, yeah, that's a good, that, it's a that, good first it's step. It's a good first step, but don't take it off the table. Mm. Because I personally have just known too many situations where that first look didn't go deep enough or the problem wasn't severe enough yet for it to be easily diagnosed. Or the, the problem could be a health issue, but it, if it's in the environment, I, I read something the other day about a dog in his crate who had vision problem and he, he didn't want to go into his crate. But the reason was that there was something like a ball that was reflecting uh, the light in the crate and it hurt his eyes. And so it's a health issue, but it's in the environment. Let's say the saddle is hurting. Maybe the vet, when the vet comes, the horse doesn't have the saddle on and it's not as clear, perhaps. But as soon as you put the saddle, there's, there are these pressure points and yes. it is a health issue. We all know how difficult sometimes um, ailments can be to find. I mean, you have whole departments, you know, internal medicine sometimes who are like detectives trying to find what the problem is. I'm thinking about a horse that was in my barn for a while who was showing some behavioral issues, some general grumpiness, and, and then she had a mild colic. And when they did the rectal exam to check to see what was going on with the colic, they felt a lump on her ovary. Mm. She actually did have a tumor on her ovary. Mm. And it was related to the behavioral issues that were seen in this horse. But until that tumor got large enough that it was causing the colic issue, that was not something that was going to be easily diagnosed. No. And so a lot of people would have gone at the top of the hierarchy, which is punishment. Yeah. Or just gone said, okay, my horse is fine. My horse is healthy. And, and so let me proceed. And all I want to, to stress is don't take the health issues completely off your radar. I always have my antenna out yeah. scanning for that as a possibility because I've just seen it way too many times. And what I will often say is, if a behavioral problem persists, after you have done reasonable training that you know 
with other horses would have resolved the problem, and that problem is still persisting, there's a physical issue there. Mm -hmm. You may not know what it is. You may not be able to spot it yet, but it's there. And I can't think of a situation where that was not the case at the end of the day when we really when we really scratched and scratched below the surface that, oh, yes, this explains all those things that we were seeing. So the, the health issues, they should always be on the radar. And part of the reason for that is, you know, we have to really think about the evolutionary background of horses, that they evolved in savannas as a herd animal. And a horse that showed lameness, a horse that showed any sort of physical disability not only made itself more on the radar of any predator, but it also put its whole family group at risk. Mm -hmm. So if you have a horse that is showing any sign of weakness, that's the individual that the lions, the, the wild dogs, the wolves are going to zero in on. And anytime you bring attention from the predators to your herd, the whole herd, individuals in that herd are at risk. So horses are really, really good at hiding things. Yeah. And and a horse that doesn't hide things may also be at risk of being ostracized from a group. And then he's really vulnerable. Mm. So if a horse can hide how uncomfortable he is, he's going to do it. But it still may be affecting his ability to stand well for a farrier. It still may mean that when you bring the saddle out, he's grinding his teeth and he's swishing his tail and and showing other signs of, I don't want what's about to happen to me. So we, we have to be good detectives. And and the more you know your animal, the more you can catch these signs early. Yeah. You know, sometimes it might be just in the speed at which it responds to your cue. Yes. It's just a little bit slower. He will do it. Let's say his hawk are hurting and he will be slower to back up. Whereas he's eager to do everything else. But when you ask him to back up, he's a bit slow. He'll do it eventually. Of course, if the horse is going to be punished, they can do a lot when they hurt. Right. But even if you're not using punishment, there are other little things that will be a sign when you know your animal you you when you spend time reading your animal you will know that something's off i'm in my office now and i'm looking at the wall where there's a picture of the cover of my first book like you're training for your horse and on the cover is magnet our i always think of him as our one in ten million arabian and magnet came into my barn because he belonged to clients of mine who who wanted to do weekend trail riding. They liked going up into the mountains for these long 10-mile trail rides, 20-mile trail rides, and, and, and fast. The husband liked to go fast. And they lived in New York City during the week. They came up into the Berkshires, the mountains in western Massachusetts for the weekend, and they always had guests. And so Magnet was the guest horse. And he was he was he was just a cool horse he was the first time that i rode him i just absolutely fell in love and coveted him and i don't covet very many horses but magnet was 
he just, he fit me like a glove. And I just, there was something about him that just uh, made me say, I, I want this horse. But he was their horse. And he wasn't their primary riding horse. So I only saw him now and then when I went over to, to work with them with their own horses. And Magnet was not the primary focus. But I started to hear these Magnet horror stories that he was not doing well with the guests at all and and that he was scaring them and that the the riders who who knew stuff would get on and they try and they really they he he did these beautiful flying changes and so on and they would ride him so they could ride the changes and then they'd go up into the mountains with him and 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 the riders who didn't who were fairly novice riders were getting really scared because Magnet was going so fast and so there were training issues that were coming into play but then I started to hear that Magnet was falling so he was going up into the mountains and he was falling with riders and and, and so people were beginning to be afraid to ride him and he was the horse that was left in the pasture these clients didn't want to keep a horse that wasn't being used and so I piped up and I said, well, why don't you send him over to me so I can sort out what's going on with the training before you sell him? And so they sent him over to me and I rode him for a little bit. And the, and, he, and when he arrived, he looked terrible. His coat was flat. He'd lost a ton of weight. He just looked horrible. And when I started to ride him, he felt so flat. He felt like if he were a car, he he felt like he had flat tires. And there was something in his hind end that just wasn't right, but I couldn't put my finger on what was wrong. He just didn't feel right. So I talked to my clients about him and we got the vet out. And this was a vet who knew me and, and he came out and did a lameness exam. So we sent him around on lunge line on at the walk and the trot and we did hind leg flexions and so on. and and. He passed everything. He wasn't lame. So the vet was sort of puzzled. He said, you know, he looks fine. And I kept saying to him, but there's something wrong. There's something wrong. He's just not right. And so we'd take him back out in the barn and we'd look at a few more things. And the vet would say, you know, he's, he's fine. I'm not seeing anything. And I'd say, ah, oh, but he's just not right. And so finally, he went out to the car, got his stethoscope, and listened to Magnet's heart. And he had a horrific heart murmur. And that's why he looked so awful and felt so flat and was falling with riders up in the hills because he was literally running out of air. Mm. And until you really start scratching the surface, you can so easily miss some of these things. Well, even, you know, lameness... It's not always easy to evaluate. No, it isn't. I mean, you can have three professional looking at a horse, and they won't agree which which leg is no. lame. Well, it's hard. If there is, it's really hard. Yes, it can. It can be. It it can be quite hard. I mean, there are a few things that can help you assess, but you know, sometimes if the lameness is on many legs, it's not an easy thing to evaluate. No, even for professionals, you must have seen a lot of that over the years, given the number of horses yep. that were in the Cavalia show. And I've seen I've seen vets yeah. not agreeing yeah. too on what the problem is. So, yeah, and I think there has been some research on that too. You know, um, 
evaluation by veterinarian of lameness, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do sometimes. That's right. And the only reason that this vet persisted was because he knew me. Mm. And he knew me well enough that when I said, there's something there, there's something there, that he kept looking. And if we'd had more of a casual relationship or if he hadn't known me as well, he would have said, you know, the horse is fine. I don't see anything. He looks fine. Just ride him. But he knew me and he persisted. Of course, it has a happy ending. The heart murmur was a horrific heart murmur. And my clients were really stuck because you can't sell a horse with that kind of heart murmur. But they didn't really want to keep him out as a pasture ornament. And so they were stuck. I mean, who would want a horse like this? And of course, the answer was, I would. So Magnet came to live with me, and he, for the kind of work that I wanted to do, I didn't need to ride him up into the mountains. For the kind of work that I do with, with horses, he, was, he would be perfectly fine. And of course, he went on to become Ann Edie's horse, so that's Panda's owner. So Ann, Ann Edie was my client who's blind. And, and together we developed him, and he truly, with clicker training, he, without clicker training, because I encountered him just as I was starting to explore clicker training. And I've always said he would have been fine if he'd never been clicker trained. He was a nice, polite, easy to get along with horse. But with clicker training, he became a one in 10 million horse. Hmm. He was just extraordinary. And someday we're going to have to do a podcast with Anne because, and let her talk about Magnet because the feel that he gave to a rider was truly, you just felt like you'd died and gone to heaven. And one day we have to do a podcast about horses who cannot be ridden anymore, but who can bring a lot of joy to people still. Yes. We have to do a podcast yes. on that one yes. day because, you know, sometimes people let go of horses that are whatever the age because they cannot ride anymore. But there's so many things that you can do with a horse other than ride a horse. I yes. know people who never ride and they have horses and they love it. That's They're right. their companions. And you don't ride your dog. No. And yet a lot of people have dogs and they're really happy with that companionship and they train and they teach their dogs all kinds of things. I'm never going to ride the goats, but look at look at That's right. Look at how much they make me smile every day. Yeah. 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 And, you know, certainly I think the relationship that you get from the riding just adds immensely. It's a, a lovely icing on the cake with, that comes with horses. And, and many of us are drawn to horses because of the riding. But if something happens and if the horse takes that proverbial bad step in the pasture, well, it's, it's a real grieving when, when you discover that, that your beloved horse cannot be ridden anymore it's a it's a death of a dream but it doesn't have to be the death of the horse or the death of your relationship that's right it's just a change it's a difference yeah. we're not getting very far no we're Susan's only at the hierarchy. bottom of the hierarchy so that was the wellness <laughs> uh check before yes, yes. um going to any kind of behavior change procedure so what's the next one well, I'm, I'm wondering if we should tackle that or whether we should say, what a great place to stop. <laughs> and we can always 
let Susan talk about the hierarchy in the upcoming webinar and we can certainly return to it because if if all we've done is looked at wellness, just think we still have the full the whole chart. I mean, just briefly what's next are all of the antecedent arrangements, meaning you know, you arrange the environment and then you look at positive reinforcement, that's the, the least intrusive, most positive types of interventions in your training. And then you start looking at some of the other strategies for training, the things like the differential reinforcement of, of alternative behaviors. And then you start getting into the speed bumps. The speed bumps are that you want to really think about, or do you want to use this procedure before moving on? And you'd have procedures such as extinction. And then the negative reinforcement sits up there in her hierarchy. But then I always want to pull negative reinforcement out and dissect it, because are we talking about macro negative reinforcement or micro negative reinforcement? And are we talking about macro extinction or micro extinction? And that's another whole podcast in and of itself. And then you get to the part of the of the process where not only do you have a speed bump, but you have a stop sign and a traffic barricade that says, before you go any further, you want to really step back and think about, is this a procedure that you should be using? And maybe you need to be consulting with other trainers, with behaviorists, you need to be reading some more books, etc., because this is the point at which you start to say, maybe for this situation, I really do need to use positive punishment. I need to have the active um, presentation of an aversive. So Susan doesn't take that completely off the table. She just makes sure that there are lots of, that you're, that you're not going there straight away. Yeah, and she, she suggests that this should be reserved to people who really yes. have the knowledge and the skills. And the thing about that is that usually people who have the knowledge and the skills, they, they never, never need, need to go, to, go to, to that, to, to go there because they know how to solve it way, way earlier in the hierarchy yeah. with the antecedent arrangement and the positive reinforcement yep. and the teaching of, a, of alternative behaviors. And that's usually where they will be able to solve it. And so it's very rare that the real skilled trainers will use positive yeah. punishment. And that's what Ken Ramirez talks about as well in the training of his staff when he was at the Shedd Aquarium, that the novice handlers were only allowed to reinforce behaviors that they liked, and they were to be non-reactive to the unwanted behaviors. But and it was only as they became really skilled in the use of the core foundation of training, of using positive reinforcement, that they were allowed to use other more advanced strategies. And by the time they were a senior trainer, they could use anything that they felt was needed and appropriate, and that included positive punishment. But exactly as you just said, Ken knew that you know, these they they now were so skilled and so knowledgeable that he didn't need to worry about it. They weren't going to be going straight to punishment. But it also made me think about the George Lakoff work with the the metaphors, and he had the metaphor of the 
the nurturing parent and, and versus the strict father parenting styles. And that when I read his work, that it made me immediately think of horse training and this great, this world divides, so to speak, between the command-based training and the cue-based training. And I've written a lot about the Lakoff's work and talked about it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it many times again in these podcasts. But when I looked at Susan's diagram, and, and maybe we'll have to ask Susan if, if we can have permission to put the diagram up in the library section, because it's, it's much easier when you can look at it to follow what we're saying. But when you look at the diagram and, and it's set out as, a, as a, this little roadway and you have a car at the bottom that's going in at, at the lower part where it's health, where you look at the health and then you look at the antecedent arrangements in changing the environment and positive reinforcement, you're going along this road. Well, that's if you're a cue-based or you're, you're in the nurturing parent metaphor, paradigm. But if you, if your world is the strict father paradigm, that's not where you start. You start right at the top with positive punishment. Mm-hmm. And this is what we see a lot. I'll see this, these stories that people tell when they come to the clinics and Friday night we do the introductions. And one of the common stories is just that, that somebody was having an issue with a horse went straight to punishment because that's what it's it's not even necessarily that they live in that strict father paradigm but that the the people who were teaching them about horses did and so what they learned about horses is you go straight to punishment yeah because that's how you get respect yeah and it's it's how you get results i mean it punishment Punishment does work. You can't deny it works some punish- of the time. Well, it has fallout, but yeah. it does work. It stops behavior. Yeah. It's it's how we have trained horses and dogs and elephants and people through punishment. And it has horrific fallout, but it does control behavior. But if a horse has a physical issue where you're asking him to bend to the to the right, but that causes a lot of pain. And now he's got to choose between the punishment that you're willing to inflict or the pain that, that he's put in. That's the horse who may be exploding, who may be leaping out of your hand, who may be kicking out the worst of the worst horse at the problem horse clinics. Well, if you want your punishment to work, you're, you have to cause more pain yeah. than the pain it is experiencing from That's right. whatever That's right. health issues. And so what can start to happen is, well, the punishment isn't working, so now they're going down the hierarchy and ending up with, oh, maybe there's something physically wrong with the horse. So instead of thinking first, is there something physically wrong with the horse? It's an, it comes more as an afterthought. And what we want to encourage and put out is, and what Susan is putting out there with this humane hierarchy, is that we want to look at that first. That before you 
choose any of these training interventions, you first look at, can the animal physically do what I'm asking it to do? What is going on with its health that this is, is this a fair and reasonable thing to ask of the horse? You know, if we, if we have a chance before Susan's webinar, I would like to talk about it in other podcasts a little bit more going up the hierarchy because just in the antecedent arrangements, there's so much that can be done. And, you know, with the retired horses I had at Cavalia when they arrived from the show, um, some of them weren't ready for clicker training. We, you know, and like you said, you can't just take something away without replacing it with something else. Well, before they had enough positive training in them, we needed to manage them. That's like the turnout, isn't it? So they weren't ready to be even led out. That's right. So some of them, you know, they were stallions, very high energy. And I didn't allow any whips or sticks or anything of that sort. But before I could ask a green groom to take this horse out to pasture, we needed to train this horse yes. to walk by a green groom politely, calmly, yep. at the pace of the groom going to pasture. And the pasture here were far away. <laughs> they were huge pastures. Yes. And so some of them were quite far. And so the animal needed to learn how to walk calmly all the way to the pasture with a novice group. Yes. And before this was accomplished, they still needed to go out every day. So we became quite creative with antecedent arrangement to make sure that all was well, that everybody was safe, that no bad habits were rehearsed, and that every horse went out every day. Yes. You yes. can do a lot with antecedent That's arrangements. That's right. That's right. While you're training, you need to do that. Because, you know, we always say train where you can, not where you can't. Train what also, train what you can train, not what you cannot train. So in the meantime, what do you do? That's right. And I'll often have people who say, but, you know, I have to groom the horse, so I have to turn the horse out. Well, first, horse can be dirty for a little bit. So yep. while, while he's learning to stand on a mat, before he's mastered that skill, he could be, a, it's okay if he's a little dirty. And then for the turnout, you, you had such brilliant solutions of creating these channels that allowed the horse to get to the turnout safely, but the grooms weren't put in jeopardy, which was really important. So, and it was actually kind of fun to see. Yeah, it was. It <laughs> and was. we used, so we used corridors where the horses would just turn themselves out. You know, some people will say, well, I don't have an arrangement where I can do that. Well, we went through a lot of trouble <laughs> to make these corridors because some of them were like far away, but just open the door and the horse would lead itself to pasture. We used mats. We used targets. Yes. I mean, targets are great because it changes everything. When the horse is following the target to the pasture, and it changes everything on both sides because now the handler is not doing all this stuff with the lead rope. 
Because it's also, you need to teach both. Yes. You need to teach the handler also. And so if the, the, ha the rope handling is not yet subtle, you prefer to work with the handler to refine their rope handling, but still they can take the horse out with the target. Yep. Or the cow. You know, I, I, we, we talked <laughs> yeah. a couple podcasts back about Snickers the cow, and I don't know whether people, re I, I had said I was just going to put pictures up, but I've actually put a video up of Snickers following the target, and it's, it's just an absolutely charming video. It is. And if we can do it with a cow, my goodness, we should be able to do it with our, with our horses. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But we can we can certainly when we have a chance if if we do a podcast on that we could give lots of examples yes. of antecedent yes. arrangement, and you know one of the things um, because when you're doing behavior modification and you're trying to undo to change an unwanted behavior, the best thing you can do is prevent that behavior to happen in the first place. Yeah. That's the best program. Yes. Is don't, you won't have to go into all the extinction and all the, you know, the strategies to, to suppress an unwanted behavior. Just don't let and, it happen. And actually, if you're really, if you're really a positive reinforcement, positively oriented trainer, you're not trying to stop behaviors. Because if you're trying right. to stop an unwanted behavior, you're still in the punishment side of the, of the coin, really. What you want to be doing is saying, what do I want my horse to do? And let me build that behavior. Yeah, but sometimes the, the reinforcer is in the environment. Yeah, but you know? still, And this is where still, also management is important. Because that's right. If the, if the reinforcer is in the environment... Well, you know, you have to man you have to right. find but management. I, I still want to be looking at what is it that I want my horse to do. So if I want my horse to lead out to pasture, walking beside a, a handler at the pace of the handler, regardless of how skilled or not the handler is, regardless of the kind of weather that we're having on cool fall days and on hot summer days whether the grass is there, you know, all of those, all of those elements that go into defining the behavior is if I start to really define what is it that I want my horse to do, then I'm, then I'm a constructional trainer. And that's when and that really ties us back to the beginning of what I was talking about with the goats of, okay, here's the situation that I have of three goats that are not getting along. Well, let me go individually build the skills, build the repertoire of how would I like each of these goats individually to behave. And then lo and behold, I can put them back together again and, and they do great. So it's that, what is it that I want my animals to do? And actually, I think that's a great place to say, let's leave everyone here with that to think about and we'll continue on in another day because right. clearly there's a lot <laughs> there is a, a lot, lot here more to yeah. say yeah yeah we'll keep that for next time yes all right so have fun with your training and off we go all right bye, bye. 
In today's podcast, we mostly talked about the first two levels of the hierarchy, but there are four other levels in the diagram. So if you want to dig deeper into the subject, be sure to head over the Equiosity Library and look at the bonus material for this episode. There, you will find the complete hierarchy in an article written by Dr. Susan Friedman. The article is titled, What's Wrong with This Picture? Efficiency is Not Enough. It's a great article. It starts with an advice from Hippocrates, which I am sure you have already heard, but is very relevant to animal training and certainly worth repeating. The advice is, make a habit of two things, to help or at least to do no harm. If you want to read this article or have a look at the hierarchy and you're not yet a subscriber to the library, you can do so at our website, equiosity.com. It's free and quick. All you have to do is enter your email. With her hierarchy, Susan encourages us to think about the welfare of our learners while selecting the most positive, least intrusive, effective interventions to accomplish our behavior goals. This way we can be both effective and humane. If you have any further questions about the hierarchy, be sure to join us at our September 29th webinar where Susan will be our guest expert. See you next week 